Thanks, Zach. Uh, well, welcome to, to church. I want to add my welcome to Lyndon's. My name's Rowan, if you don't know me. I'm one of the pastors here at Auckland AV. Uh, it's our kind of normal um, pattern to work through parts of God's Word, the Bible, and see what the Bible has been saying about Jesus, who He is, and what He's come to do. And that's exactly what we're looking at today in this section in Colossians. So why don't we pray together that God would help us to see the claim of the Bible and who Jesus is clearly as we start this new year. Let's pray together. Father God, as we have just heard you speak through your word, as we have heard the claims of the Apostle Paul about the amazingness of Jesus, we ask that through your spirit, you'd help us to see today what a difference understanding who Jesus is makes to our life, to our year, to our days, to everything. We pray this, Lord, in your son's name. Amen. I am the greatest. That's the, the call of the famous boxer Muhammad Ali. He, he thought and, and was for a while one of the greatest boxers the face of the planet had, had ever seen. I am the greatest. It's the desire of, of pretty much every sportsman or woman on the face of the planet, isn't it? To be the best, to be what we can be. And my hunch is that I am the greatest is the unspoken hope of every person in this room. At least in, in some way, whether that be the, the greatest at our job, the greatest parenting the children we have, the greatest in, in the things that are put before us, we all want to do things well. We've, it's like we've got this inbuilt search in us for greatness, to, to be great, to, to, to feel great, right? To, to see great things, to experience great experiences, to create great things. We exist for greatness, and if you, like me, have come to the conclusion that you're probably not going to represent New Zealand in the next Olympics, nor be on the cover of Time magazine, I think those hopes are probably gone for me now, um, then I think we start to, to kind of shift our hopes, our dreams, our expectations of who is the greatest to, well, if you have them, your kids. I'd love to see my kids have the, the, the biggest opportunity, the, the best opportunity to be the best they can be, to live out my hopes and dreams through them. <laughs> Our search for greatness seems to be just stitched into the very fabric of what it means to be human. We, we all want to be good. We want, we want to be better than good if we can, don't we? We want to find greatness. We want to seek greatness. We want to be great. In 2013, um, two professors, Skinner and Ward, uh, published a massive study that explored throughout history the most significant figures of world history, searching really for who is the greatest, who has been the most influential person uh, throughout history. They assessed people from Aristotle to Einstein, and they came to the conclusion that the most influential figure from history was Jesus of Nazareth. Now, this was no Christian book. And neither professor claimed any religious faith. It was at Cambridge University Press, serious study where a mathematical kind of equation was used to work out what person throughout history had influenced human history the most. A man from a little town called Galilee with absolutely no influence, no, no kind of impact, no, no central position of power, no armies, according to this Cambridge University Press study, has become the most influential human in history. We're right to search for greatness. It's just how we've been made. However, the claim of the Bible is 
the only greatness that satisfies, the only place you'll find hope in 2015, the only way you'll be able to understand what greatness truly is, is to see Jesus as Paul shows that he is, is to see him for who he is and what he's done. And so that's why Paul lays out in this passage from the book of Colossians, the amazingness of Jesus. Let me show you why he's so amazing. In verse 15, he starts off talking about Jesus like this. Colossians 1.15, he's the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. Now, if you look at any coin, on the back of a coin is often, well, if it's in New Zealand, is the queen's head. It's her image. It's to say, really, even though we might not acknowledge it very much in Australia or New Zealand, the queen is our head. On the back is an image, a representation to say she is the monarch, the supreme authority. Jesus here, according to the claim of Paul, is the image of God. He's God to us. He's God's representation on earth. As I chat to people, uh, meet them in the street, talk to my friends and neighbors about Jesus and God, you know, uh, people so often claim that you know, there's no God. Have you seen him? You can't feel him or, or talk to him or hear him. There's no kind of tangible evidence for a God, is there? But here's the thing. The claim of the history books, the claim of this account, these eyewitness accounts, is if you were alive 2,000 years ago and walked around the ancient Near East, you would have seen God. You would have seen God. Uh, that phrase, the firstborn among, over all creation, is kind of talking about Jesus' position. Um, the firstborn is the one who would inherit everything from the Father. So the firstborn is the one who would then get his authority when the Father um, w- went on in terms of kingdoms. And so you look in, in Psalm 89, the worldview of the Jews at the time was this. This is what God says, Psalm 89, verse 27. It's a promise. I will make him the firstborn, and here's what it means, the highest of the kings on the earth. The greatness of this Jesus isn't just like, oh, he's a good guy. (laughs) I like him. He's got some great morals for me to follow. The claim of history is that Jesus is the greatest king, the greatest ruler. In fact, he is the ruler. He's God. And just in case you missed that point, listen to what Paul says in verse 16. For by him, Jesus, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. What picture do you have of Jesus? What, what is he like? Who is he t- to you? Because the claim of the Bible is that he made you. He made everything. He spoke and and it came into being. Everything that exists on earth and in the sky, visible, invisible, whether it's carbon, light, matter, antimatter, the, the stars, the sun, solar systems. He made it all. He also made these rulers and authorities. Now, I take this in two ways. He he made those who are ruling at the moment ruling. He's the one who gives authority. He allows people to rule. Now, people don't always do it well, and there are repercussions for that. But he's even over them. 
The reason Paul's explaining this stuff to us is, 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 is it's not evident to us when we stand here or sit here in, in a cinema in Auckland in, in 2015 that Jesus is the one who is ruling all things. But then he wants to take our picture of the kind of earthly rulers and come even larger and say, no, Jesus is even over the rulers in the heavenly places. Now, when I hear that, I'm like, what is this? I don't see any heavenly places. Um, what is going? The Bible's claim is that there is more going on than just us right here and right now. And I think everyone has a little sense of that, don't they? That there is more to life than just the here and now, the flesh and blood. There is more that matters. That after we die, there is something. That's still the predominant view of every culture on the face of the planet. That there is life after death. There is greater than us. And the claim here is that well, Jesus is over everything. There are rulers and authorities. There, are, there is, if you want, a war going on. A rebellion against God from those he created. But that's the thing to note. Even those who are in rebellion against God, the, the rulers and, and authorities, I, I take it it's talking about Satan and, and the kind of whole satanic realm. God is over them. Jesus is over them. He made them. He made them knowing they would rebel, knowing in some way when things are put right and they are put back in the right place under submission to the true and living God, that it would bring him more glory. It's interesting, throughout the Bible, you kind of see this view of Satan, like, like in, in Job. Um, in Job 1, uh, verse 12, there's this kind of picture in the heavenly realms where, where, where Satan kind of comes up to God and um, God says this, Very well, the Lord told Satan. Talking about Job, everything he owns is in your power. However, you must not lay a hand on Job himself. So Satan left the Lord's presence. Why, why do we know that? Why did God reveal that? I take it. It's to show us that he is in control of even Satan. The great reformer throughout history, the, the guy who catalyzed the European Reformation, was Martin Luther. And he, whenever he speaks of Satan, calls him God's Satan. God's Satan. Who is in control? of Who lets Satan go this far and this far only? It's not like he tells him what to do and says, you must go and, and cause this havoc and pull people away. But he has complete control over how far and who. He's like a rotwheeler on a leash that God says that's enough and he must obey. There is nothing these rulers and authorities in this picture can do apart from Jesus' sovereign permission. What are the odds of a man from Galilee being the most persuasive and influential human on the face of the planet? What are the odds of that man being in control of everything, of making us? Yet in Isaiah, we're told that actually the rule of the universe would come from Galilee. 700 years earlier, there's a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, it's not on the screen, that the one who would come from Galilee would rule the world, rule the world. You can't orchestrate 700 years of history to make that happen. And while it does say Jesus created everything and is in control of them, remember, it doesn't say that he's making them do what they're doing. But there will be a time when he will stop all rulers and authorities and he will be placed as he really is. Who is Jesus? He's the one who created everything. The claim of the Bible is he made you. He made you. 
He's in control of everything. But Paul doesn't stop there to just his creative effort, like he's kicked off some giant clock. He's wound it up and let it keep spinning. No, no, no. It says here in verse 16 that all things were created through him and for him, that he's done them all. He's created everything that is for his purpose. There's a design, there's a point to what he's done. The purpose of life, the purpose of this year for you, no matter what you think about Jesus, you were made to serve him, to know him, to be loved by him. He is the ruler of everything and it's for him. Have a look at verse 16. All things have been created through him and for him. Why are we here? To treat Jesus as he really is. The purpose of all things is for him. Everything came into being. Everything that exists is really God's bling. It's his handiwork to say, have you seen how great I am? Have you seen how much I've loved you? Do you see how amazing I am? You look at the world around us, you see creation and it's impressive. It's impressive. You see the way we interact, the way our human bodies work. Wow. It all exists to make you go, there is greater than me. There is one who made me. That means that nothing in this universe exists for its own sake. From the deepest marinara trench to the top of Everest, from the smallest particle to the the biggest sky star, the most boring school subject to the most fascinating science, the most ugly cockroach to the most beautiful human, from the greatest saint to the most wicked genocidal dictator, all exist that we might see the greatness of Jesus. Have you seen Jesus the way Paul does? You might not agree, but I want to to challenge you to have a look today. You might go, yeah, I trust Jesus, but do you see him like this? The way Paul does? Is he everything Not only did he make everything, not only does everything exist for him, but he sustains it all to this very day. He's not just absent in some room, kind of sitting there with his feet back, just hanging out, waiting, you know. He's sustaining all things. The reason that things exist, the reason that I can breathe, that my heart can beat and that your heart can beat here this very day is because he has said yes to that. Just try it for a second. I want you to take a deep breath. Do it now. Big breath in. You can only do that according to the Bible because Jesus has sustained you long enough. It's so easy for us to think the world is about us. But Jesus is in control of it all. Have a look at verse 17. By him, all things hold together. You ever taken a ride on a plane? I, I love planes. I love being in the air. Every time I get in a plane, I'm just freaked out. How is it that this thing can be in the sky? Do you know a 747 weighs over 400,000 kilograms? Like, well, how big is that? It's about 243 cars. And it goes in the air with me on it in a bit of steel and we fly. I just, it amazes me. How is that possible? Well, scientists tell us it's possible because um, 
when the wing goes through the air, when you've got forward thrust, that um, the difference in pressure between the air above the wing and the air below the wing, caused by the extra distance of the curve on top of the wing, causes lift and lifts the weight of 243 cars when you go fast enough and you have a large enough surface area in the sky. You're in a seat in the sky tied to 243 cars because the constants of the universe stay the same. That's why we expect planes to stay in the sky. That's why it's a disaster, and it is a disaster. When planes crash and people die, it's, it's, it's horrible. But the only reason we expect planes to fly is because we expect the universe to remain constant. And what Paul is saying is the only reason the universe remains constant is because Jesus allows it to. Scientists don't know why it's constant. Why is that the case? All science does is make observable observations. <laughs> it just looks, em- empirical research, looks at what we see and sees it repeat and says, well, we think there's a law here and we rely on it. We put our hands, we put our lives in God's hands. Every moment we get on a bus, every moment we take a breath, every time we get on a plane, every time we get on a boat, Every time we eat some food, we believe what's in there is what's in there. We react the same way. We exist because God holds everything together. In fact, science, scientists have looked at the statistical probability that the laws that exist, the, the, the laws that are here, the constants across the universe came about by chance. It is possible that everything that we see today, that the, the whole way the universe holds together was just random accident. But the odds against the universe existing, the odds to say, you know, if I was going to be a, a betting man and to say, look, the universe could randomly come in, in, into existence and could just so happen that way that all the kind of things that need to line up would line up are phenomenally huge. They just defy belief. It's like saying this, for all the constants of the universe to work together like they do will be like tossing a coin and having it come up heads 10 quintillion times in a row. That's the probability that this exists by chance. That's what scientists say. In fact, Fred Hoyle, the astronomer who who coined the term the Big Bang, he's the guy who worked out and kind of started out with this Big Bang stuff, said this, that his atheism was greatly shaken at the developments of these things, speaking about the the realities of of the odds of how the universe came into being. He later wrote that a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics as well as with chemistry and biology. The number one um, calculation from the facts seemed to be so overwhelming to put the conclusion almost beyond question. In other words, to say that this is a chance, even Fred Hoyle is like, no way. It's crazy to think that. The fact that gravity holds us to the chair, that planes stay in the sky, makes more sense to understand that someone has monkeyed with the physics. Someone is holding it together, as well as the chemistry and the biology. And Paul's claim is that Jesus is the one who's doing that. Without him, the universe would fall apart. It never would have come into being. The very reason we can exist and breathe and laugh and love is because Jesus allows it. Well, then Paul gets personal with this church that he's writing to, with these people. He says, Jesus isn't just the head over all of that. He's the head over you. He's the head of this church. 
And as a church here, that's what we're about. If you're new here, we love having you here. We love having people come along and check out who Jesus is, to ask hard questions, to put him under the microscope and see if he, he does stand up. We, ha- we love having people come along and going, is Jesus really who the Bible claims? We love having people come along going, well, do I want to know more about him? I want to know him more. I want to see the depth of what he's said. But everything we do here is all about Jesus because it's a claim of the Bible. He is our head. He is the one who has drawn us together. He's ultimately our senior pastor. His word is what we follow because we believe in the historical account of what went on in that first century around Galilee. The things he said, the things he did, he claimed to be the rule of the universe and has now become the most influential person in history. So as we think through this year and what we're about as, as part of Auckland AV, we need to be about pointing people to Jesus, our head, our ruler. We need to be sitting underneath him saying he is the one who defines the way we live. He's the one who defines as a church what we do. He's the one who defines it all. Paul couldn't be clearer. Jesus is everything. And once Jesus is removed, there's nothing. Who is Jesus to you? What is, what is your view of him? Who do you think he is? How, what impact does he have on your life? You might be a Christian here today and, and trusting him. Is he everything? Is he who Paul claims him to be? As you think through your new year and what you'll do and how you'll live, is, is Jesus the ruler of it all? You might be here checking him out. We love that. Who is Jesus to you? I don't want to believe it just because a piece of paper says it. Just because of the Bible says it. Even if the Bible is one of the most historically verifiable pieces of paper known from antiquity. But as I read the history books, even outside the Bible, as I try and make sense of the evidence, as I, as I read the studies by these guys from Cambridge University, it's not proof. But it is evidence that Jesus needs to be taken seriously. You need to take these claims seriously. I'm continually convinced that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. And if that's something you'd like to check out, we'd love to chat with you about that. We'd love for you at this moment, I'd love for you at this moment to go, actually, I need to take or look at Jesus seriously, if this is the claim. But there's one more area that Paul talks about that we see his greatness. We see why he is so good. If you thought he was impressive before, wait till you hear this. And it's all about what he's done for us. But to understand that, we need to understand ourselves first. Look at verse 21. It's where Paul goes. And it might hurt. <laughs> Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions. Now, when I, I read that, that verse in verse 21... I can go, yeah, I can definitely say that about people on this earth. I can say that about others, uh, dictators that have done awful things, definitely. Just awful, awful things against kind of the Ten Commandments that are wrong. We all know are wrong. And, but this is saying it about me. That you, Rowan, were once alienated and hostile in my mind because of my evil actions. Now, as I read it, I don't feel like I'm hostile. Do you? I don't feel like I'm evil. I look at the scale of what people have done across the earth and I'm trying to be up the great end, not the ungreat end. 
But the reality is, every single one of us has at some point in our life said, God, I just want to do things my way. We might not have said it in those words, but we've lived in a way that says, well, I'm going to live the way I want to live, not the way Jesus says to live. Not with Jesus as the ruler of my life, but as me. And in some ways you're like, that doesn't sound that bad. But just apply it for a second to, to kind of just a normal family situation. Say you went up um, to your parents and you said to your parents, I actually don't think I'm your, your, your son or daughter. I don't want to treat you as my father or mother. I, I just want to live life my way and just I want to start my own thing and do it my way. I don't want to carry your last name. I, I don't want to talk to you. It's no, no offense. I just want to be me. It is offensive. Some of us in this room will have said that or had that said to us for good or bad reasons. But to a perfect God who has only ever loved us, who is in control of all things and cares for us, well, that's hostility. It's actually evil. If Jesus is who this passage claims to be, We've taken command of what is rightly his. We've put ourselves in the driver's seat of the universe saying, I'm going to run my life, my way, doing my things. No, you know, no, no offense, God, but it's incredibly offensive. A friend of mine, um, I don't know him very well, but we've caught up a couple of times, uh, tells a story about when he was uh, once invited to Buckingham Palace. He had a friend who was in the kind of in the hierarchy in Buckingham Palace, and he got to take a private tour through Buckingham Palace. And on the tour, he actually got to go into the throne room. Now, I don't, I don't know if that's normal, uh, but he actually got to go into the throne room where the, the Queen's throne was there. And he's there, standing there thinking, you know, he's Australian, so he's a bit rude. And he's thinking, um, well, I'm only going to get one opportunity to be in this room, so I might as well ask the question now. So, so he says to the tour guide, do you mind for a second just taking a quick picky of me on the throne? Right? And the tour guide said something like this, Mr. Chapman, I don't mind if you sit in the royal throne, but the yeoman warders of Her Majesty's royal palace and fortress, aka the beef eaters, mind very much, as does the sovereignty Her Majesty the Queen. And should you try to get more than one meter closer than you are right now, the only throne you'll find yourself on will be the water closet in Scotland Yard. See, the throne is the seat of power for the British Empire. Now, the British Empire might not be what it once was, but it's still a symbolic place of rule for the United Kingdom. And for anyone else to sit on that throne would be paramount to a symbolic coup, wouldn't it? That someone else could sit in the rightful seat of the ruler of that empire? It would be an overthrow, a sudden and illegal seizure of government. But here's the thing. The moment we take our lives into our hands, the moment we set up rules for how we live, we've staged a coup on the creator of the universe. We've said, step off, God. I want to rule. And that's not going to end pretty. We have far more than a beef eater and a water closet in Scotland Yard to worry about. If we want to say, God, I don't want you in my life. His ultimate punishment is to say, okay. I'm the one who remember who sustains your every breath, who gives everything you have. And if you don't want me sustaining you, I, no problems. 
And that sustenance, or lack of it, goes on for eternity. Outside of right relationship with God, we don't experience that now. We experience the joys of His creation. But if we go on long enough saying to God, get off your seat, then the day we die or the day Jesus returns, things will be put right and we will get what we've asked for. The reality of our rejection of God's rule and reign on our lives is serious consequences. We are evil and alienated from God at our heart. You, me, everyone. That's our natural tendency to run things our own way. But look at verse 22. But now he's reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Do you see how amazing those words are if they are true? It is actually possible for you and me who not only symbolically staged a coup against God, but have run our lives in rebellion and rejection against him to be restored, to have that rejection covered, paid for. How? Through Jesus, the one who made it all. See, Jesus, unlike us, he never attempted a coup. He never tried to ascend the throne of his dad, even though through him all things were created. Yet when Jesus died on the cross, he did the most extraordinary thing ever. He willingly took the penalty that we deserve, that you and I deserved, for sitting in God's seat. He took death for us. Life was taken from him. He died. He faced God's rightful and just anger, not just for, for, for me or for you, but for the whole world. And as he cried out on that cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The innocent one, the perfect one was suffering the punishment you and I deserve. And in that, he was reconciling us to God, paying the penalty for what we had done while we wanted nothing to do with it. Now, that's amazing. I was on my way here uh, this morning. Um, Sarah, I gave my keys to Sarah yesterday of the second car we have and, and forgot to get them off her. So it was walking here. Good thing we only live like 700 meters away. I'm just walking down the road with my bag, um, just near St. Luke's. And um, this car goes past the other way and beeps. And I'm like, hey, like, I don't know who it was. Anyway, the four guys in the car stick their fingers out the window like this at me. I'm like, what did I do? Like I'm just walking, I'm just walking, playing down the street. And they just stick their fingers up at me. Yet it was when we were doing that to God that Jesus did this. That he would say, for you, in rebellion, sitting on that pretend chair that you think you can rule the universe, I'll die. It was for me Jesus did that. I don't know about you, but I am so thankful for Jesus. And the claim of the Bible is if you say, my life is a mess. I've done these things. The only hope I have of ever living, ever having the benefits of God, is if Jesus has paid the penalty for me. The only way I have that is to trust in what Jesus has done. It's to trust him. Accept him for who he really is. And that is the hope of this gospel, this news. It's not wishful thinking. 
It's a certainty because God raised Jesus to life. The resurrection happened. Death was defeated. And now Jesus has been installed and ascended to where? God's right hand in heaven. He is the king now. He is the true king. Whether you like it or I like it or not, he is the one who is in control and will rule for eternity. Because of the sufficiency of his death and the reality of his resurrection, there is no one greater. We can't be good enough for God. We can't be great enough. But we have stitched into this this desire to see greatness, to know greatness, to be great. And Jesus says, I am the greatest. I am God and I love you even though you drive your life with your finger up at me. Come and trust me. So Paul takes this message in verse 23. He says, this is what we're to be about. This is what I'm about. Have a look. Verse 23, Colossians 1. This gospel, this news has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. To Paul, there is no sweeter message of hope in all the world. There's nothing greater. There's nothing more beneficial. There's nothing that that kind of captivates him more than this. To hear God's announcement That when you get up in the morning, miserable and depressed with a sense of guilt, with a sense of I can't even fulfill my own expectations on my life, let alone God's, that because of Jesus, you can be right with him. Nothing to do with me. Knowing every sin you have ever committed has been paid for. Every sin you ever will commit, as long as you keep trusting Jesus, as long as you stand with his forgiveness, trusting him, it'll be forgiven. You are reconciled to the almighty creator of the universe. The one who you were estranged from, you can now call dad. He calls you his co-heirs with Christ. We can become his children, the ones who will rule with him forever. That's what Christianity is about. And as we look to 2015, that's what we need to be about because that is what this universe is about. It's, it's reality. The question is, this new year, how will you fulfill your thirst for greatness? Will you, like I'm tempted to do all the time, try and find it in yourself, in how you appear to others, in your achievements, in your children? Or we come and realize just who Jesus is and what he's done for us. See, too often I, I think I treat Jesus like a great hitchhiker. You're driving along the road of life and, and you see Jesus and you're like, well, he looks pretty cool. Hey, I've got a bit of space in my life. Why don't you come and sit in and be with me in the car and we'll, we'll have a great life. This year, I want to have Jesus more influential in the life of, 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 of my drive. I want to have him in the car and He makes life better. He makes life fun. He gives it a bit more purpose, a bit more direction. Sometimes even points out things along the way, shows us where to go. And we have this view that Jesus makes life great. (laughs) But when you have Paul's view of Jesus, a Galilean, a little town, uninfluential in, in the world's standing, as we drive by that man 
and recognize he is the most influential man on the face of the planet. That he is God, that he's in control of all things, that he sustains everything about me. We need to slam on the brakes, take off our seatbelt and get out of the car. Walk around the other side and say, Jesus, you drive. I shouldn't be on that throne. You should be directing my life. I'm sorry for the times I've been driving along my way, for my tendency to want to grab the wheel and steer the direction that I want to go. I need you to drive. I need you to show me what right is. I need you to show me the best way to live. I need you to show me who you are more clearly so I might understand the amazingness of what you've offered us. He is the one who needs to set our direction. He's the one we need to be in sync with, to understand, to let drive. And what Paul reminds us in Colossians is this. Life is best lived when you are in sync with Jesus. For he is the true and living God. He he made you. He knows you. He knows what you've done and he loves you anyway. So how do we do that? Actually, what does that look like? Well, on the big kind of picture level, it's, it's like structuring your life so that ultimately everything you do is about Jesus and his kingdom. The way I work. I work well at work because I serve Jesus. Because he's the one that gave me this great freedom to, to work. And he created work and I want to work to serve him. I want to live my life and order my priorities and my time and my holidays about resting in Jesus. I want to invest in in building up relationships with others so that they might know him, so that I might share my life with them and we might share together in the amazingness of serving the true and living God, experiencing life the right way. We're going to structure our life so that we'll develop others to know Jesus better, to care for them, to walk alongside them, to to come along regularly and build each other up at church this year, to, to go to a connect group. To let God's word mold and shape you as, as Jesus does that. To invest in your personal growth in Jesus. To think through how you spend your, your time, your money. On a big picture level, we need to think, is Jesus who I worship? Is the image of Jesus what drives me? Or the image of the queen on the back of a coin? Or the image of pleasure? But on a micro level, it's the everyday decisions, isn't it? To keep bringing my thought back to Jesus. That I might have that picture, Paul's picture of him. That he might be my true north. That as I, as I have interactions with others, I might love and respect them because Jesus loves them. And he made them. As I want to lash out and get angry at family or friends for the way things happened at Christmas to remember me sticking my finger up at God and yet he still loved me. It's about thinking radically about what I live for. We're not saved by doing these things. We're saved because Jesus has paid the price for us and the right response to serving Jesus in every little minute detail is to put him first. It's radical, yes, But Christianity is radical. It's saying, get off the throne. It's not your place. 
Jesus said, we must deny ourselves. You're not the king. Take up our cross. Recognize he is the king. Put his things first and follow him. Anyone who loses his life for me and my sake will gain it, says Jesus. Deny yourself. Give up your life. What does 2015 look like? Well, for me, man, it's my prayer that I would put Jesus first. That that he might be as Paul sees him to me. Incredible. God, sustainer, saviour. That's why I exist. And no matter what your view of Jesus, he says that's why you exist too. Life is about being captivated by who Jesus is and therefore experiencing the freedom that comes from being forgiven, from knowing that I'm back in right relationship with the creator of the universe. No matter what I've done, no matter what I've said, Jesus is the king and he loves you. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you so much for Jesus. We confess that so often we live lives that just ignore you. That are shaped around the way we want to live. Rather than around who you really are. We acknowledge that so often we seek greatness in all the wrong places rather than recognizing the greatness of your son. We ask that this year for us as a church, for us individually, for every person in this room, you might show the amazingness of your son, Jesus, that we might be so captured by him that we are like moths to light, that we serve him with our all, that we let him drive our lives, that we might live as loyal subjects of the true kingdom, of the true king to whom has been given all authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Father, it is such a privilege to call you dad. And we ask, Lord, for those that are here today still thinking through who Jesus is, that you would show our friends here just how amazing he is. And that we all might live in such a way that isn't with ourselves on the throne, but live lives in 2015, that in everything we do and think and say, we would be pointing to the amazingness of the one who is the greatest, Jesus. Lord, we pray in his great name. Amen.